One of my uh, favourite films growing up um, was called The Goonies. Anyone seen The Goonies? What a film. What a film. And um, if you don't know The Goonies, um, the, the premise or the synopsis um, of the film is that these lads live in a community... Um, they're a bit raucous, they're a bit naughty, I like that about them. Um, a little bit of me in them, I think. Um, and they, their sort of community were under attack by some developers, they needed some money to counter that. Um, and so one of them found a treasure map in the loft, which apparently was going to lead them to treasure. Now, like any good film or any good story, it wasn't as straightforward as that. And they encounter um, problems along the way of in, uh, finding the treasure. Now, if you're anything like me, we always would like to discover some treasure one day, wouldn't we? Stumble upon some money or some famous artwork or some antique that we could cash in um, in order to go on for, I don't know, whatever you want to spend it on, a Lamborghini or a cruise or whatever. But there's something about that, isn't there? The idea of finding treasure um, and it being a good thing. Um, and as Andrew said, we, we've been camping out on this theme, fear of the Lord, for a few weeks now. And we've looked at what it is and why it should be a good thing that we try and live in the fear of the Lord. Um, and tonight we're going to continue that conversation. But for those of us who are here for the first time and you're kind of catching up or you're trying to work out what is it we're talking about, um, the, the, what is the fear of the Lord? Just very quickly, um, in his book, uh, Temple Longman reads, writes this, in fear of uh, fear of God is the beginning of wisdom. He says, the fear in the fear of the Lord is the sense of standing before the God who created everything, including humans, whose very continued existence depends on him. And the emotion is appropriate because it demonstrates acknowledgement that God is so much greater than we are. And he takes our breath away and makes our knees knock together. And such fear breeds humility and signals a willingness to receive instruction from God. It's a pretty decent definition of what the fear of the Lord is. God is so much greater than we are. It breeds humility in us. And it signals a willingness to receive instruction from God. Or to, to use language that some of us have found hope, um, helpful, it's about living in response to the, the wow and the woe of God. Proverbs says this, that the fear of the Lord is better than all, not some, not a few, but all earthly treasures. That treasure that we long to find, it's better than it all. And so the question that I want us to explore tonight is, like the guys in the Goonies who are on the hunt for treasure... If the fear of the Lord is better than all treasure, all earthly treasure, what gets in the way? What gets in the way of us living in the fear of the Lord? What obstacles are there in front of us that distract us from finding the treasure that's on the map? And tonight to do that, we're going to look at somebody in the Bible who got it categorically wrong. And the reason we're going to do that, we're going to look at somebody's failure for two reasons. One, looking at someone's failure makes me feel better about myself. What about you? But also, as someone once said, there's no such thing as failure, there's only feedback. And so we can learn to, to overcome 
some of the obstacles that face us through looking at somebody's failure. So if you've got a Bible on you or near you, we're going to spend the time um, in the Old Testament in 1 Samuel chapter 15. 1 Samuel chapter 15. So if you've got a phone, feel free to kind of find it on your phone. Google it if you need to. That's the scripture reference. We're going to be in 35 verses of it. We're going to go through it, we're going to work through it, and we're going to look at the failure of a man called Saul, and we're going to try and understand how that might help us live in the fear of the Lord and not do the same thing. So, let, let me read it to you, and then we're going to stop along the way, okay? So, we're starting from verse 1, and we're going to go all the way to the end. We don't do that often here, do we? But we're going to try and get meaty, And look at some scripture tonight. So, Samuel, now pause there, okay, pause there. Who's Samuel? Do we know who Samuel is? Let me help you understand who Samuel is, all right? Samuel, um, he, he was a prophet and a great leader for the people of Israel. Now, a prophet, we might think in this cultural moment that a prophet is primarily concerned with speaking futuristic things. And speak about what's happening in the future. But in the Old Testament, the prophets were used by God to communicate his word and his instructions. And prophets were basically God's mouthpiece. God gave them instructions. They gave them to Israel, God's people. So that's who Samuel is, okay, in this context. He's a prophet. So Samuel said to Saul, pause, who's Saul? Okay, we need to just understand who Saul is. So Saul is king of Israel. Israel is God's chosen people amongst all the people in the world at this point that we know of. And God has chosen Israel. And Israel wanted a king because all these other tribes and people around them had kings. And so God was like, okay, if you want a king, I'll anoint you a king. And so he anoints Saul king. So Saul isn't king by birthright. Saul is king because God chose him to be king. And he was to submit to the prophet Samuel. um, And so basically he was to submit to God's word. He was king of Israel, but these were not his people. These were God's people. So there's Saul. You have Samuel and Saul. So Samuel said to Saul, we can continue now, I think. I am the one the Lord sent to anoint you king over his people Israel. So listen now to the message from the Lord. This is what the Lord Almighty says. There's some words I'm about to read. We're about to read and they are awkward words. There's some verse in the Bible that I wish weren't there. And and there's a real temptation. I I was like really wrestling tonight (laughs) about these verses. And I was going to skip over them. Because I thought it's a bit awkward. We need to read them, and I'll try and help us navigate them, okay? But this is what it says. This is Samuel giving Saul God's word. This is what the Lord Almighty says. I will punish the Amalekites for what they did to Israel when they waylaid them as they came up from Egypt. Now go, attack the Amalekites, and totally destroy all that belongs to them. Do not spare them. Here's the words that I find really hard to read. Put to death men and women, children and infants, cattle and sheep, camels and donkeys. In the light of this current crisis that we find happening in Israel, between Israel and God, these are difficult words to read. 
Um, and that would be difficult. It would be difficult anyway, okay? But just, this is what I've learned through, I was like, flipping heck, why are these words in the Bible? And I just, I wanted to read to you some of the things that I've come across this week if I studied these words that have helped me to live with attention that this is a word from God to his people. Um, so who were the Amalekites, first of all? Firstly, what I've learned is that the Amalekites had a long history of violent hostility towards the Israelites as a people. So when the Israelites came out of Egypt and across um, the Red Sea, the sea parted, and then the Amalekites were their first oppressors. They attacked them from behind. Um, And so that was what I learned this week. Um, They were the first human threat to the people of Israel after the Exodus. And Amalek was um, a people deeply and consistently set against God and his people. And so the severity of the treatment of the Amalekites commanded by Yahweh here, by God, it's got to be, well, it's what I've learned, it's got to be seen in light of their initial and ongoing opposition to Israel, um, and so therefore opposition to God. And this is the reality of God, is when God's holiness confronts humanity's unholiness, um, there is confrontation. And, and basically the practice here, this, this idea of wiping out a complete people group, um, it was actually a common practice in ancient Near Eastern times, so long, long time ago. Um, and it wasn't an uncommon practice. So it was, it, the, the word totally destroy here, um, actually in Hebrew is this word harem, which is translated to ban. And it was a common practice of um, like ethical cleansing. This isn't an ethnic cleansing, this is an ethical cleansing. These are difficult words to read, and I'm trying to understand them in the context of Scripture and, and in the context of the time that it was written. And so it could cause us some shock, but the readers, original readers, it wouldn't have shocked them. Just make it okay, but it's God, and this is his judgment. And, and, uh, and it's hard to read, I understand that. But having said that, I want us to continue, okay? Because what the scripture that we're reading, the passage of scripture that we're trying to read, it's, it's not trying to make a moral argument about war and whether it's okay or not. It's trying to make a different statement. And that's the statement that I'm trying to teach tonight. So I needed to say that because they're difficult words to read in any, in any situation, but in the current climate, they're even more difficult. Okay? So hopefully that's, that, that's helpful stuff that I've learned, um, and if you want to pick my brains for my bibliography at the end, please come to me and I'll show you some great blogs that I've read that are from some very good sources and some decent books that you could buy on Amazon if you so wish so. Okay? So, let's, let's push on, all right? Let's push on. So, it's pretty clear instructions, and I'm just going to read and then we'll pause in a moment. So, verse 4. So Saul summoned the men and mustered them at Talem, 200,000 foot soldiers and 10,000 from Judah. And Saul went to the city of Amalek and set an ambush in the ravine. And then he said to the Kenites, which are another people group, go away, leave the Amalekites to us. And so the Kenites moved away from the Amalekites. Verse 7 now. So then Saul attacked the Amalekites all the way from Havilah to Shur, near the eastern border of Egypt. He took Agag, king of the Amalekites, alive, 
and all his people he totally destroyed with the sword. But Saul and the army spared Agag and the best of the sheep and cattle and the fat calves and lambs, everything that was good. These they were unwilling to destroy completely, but everything that was despised and weak they totally destroyed. Then the word of the Lord came to Samuel. Hear this. I, this is the word of the Lord coming to Samuel. I regret that I have made Saul king because he turned away from me and he has not carried out my instructions. Samuel was angry and he cried out to the Lord all that night. Verse 12. Early in the morning, Samuel got up and went to meet Saul, but he was told Saul had gone to Carmel and there he has set up a monument in his own honour and has turned and gone to down to Gilgal. And when Samuel reached him, Saul said, The Lord bless you. I have carried out the Lord's instructions. But Samuel said, What then is this bleating of sheep in my ears? What is this lowing of cattle that I hear? The first mistake that Saul makes um, is that he had an inflated view of himself. He has set up a monument in his own honour, the verse says. And when Samuel comes to him and says, um, basically to check up, well, God's given Samuel what's happened. He said, look, I've told Saul to do this and he's not followed my instructions. And so Samuel goes to Saul to inquire. And do you notice what Saul says? He says, I have carried out the Lord's instructions. His story is his truth. That's what Saul thinks. His story is his truth. He basically says, I know what God said, but I, but I know better. Actually, I've, I've improved God's commands a little bit there because I've saved Agag. And, um, you know, we, we do the same. We do the same. We might not claim our story is our truth, but we definitely hear that phrase, my story is my truth. It's in our cultural narrative. And you see this mostly in Amazon reviews, right? You ever tried to buy a product on Amazon? Are you one of the 70% of people who check the reviews before you purchase? Right? And, um, you know, people look at these before making the purchase to see what others think about a product or service. The interesting thing about this is the review, um, it's first person, so I think this is rubbish or I think this is great, and this is my experience of the reality of this product, and this is my experience of the reality of the instructions that were given to me about this Hoover that doesn't work, doesn't suck up Cheerios, says it does. And the, the review is not open to interpretation, so it stands alone and doesn't have context to the actual situation that's going on. So the waiter took so long to bring my food. That review has more power. It doesn't have context to the fact that the restaurant that the person was in was really understaffed because of illness, and the waiter was the only one that turned up to work. And it was a hard shift for them. And so it cannot be challenged in a meaningful way. And what I think this begins to shape in us is this idea that our existence is dependent upon the stories we tell. 
My experience is my truth, and me telling my truth means that I exist. And so if we're not careful, we, like Saul, have an inflated view of ourselves and our own experience of reality. And we're not willing to trust God's experience of reality and his instruction. So, Samuel's words to Saul as a response is this in verse 16. He says, enough, Samuel. Let me tell you what the Lord said to me last night. Enough, Samuel. Let me tell you what the Lord said to me. It's never about us. Walking with God is never about us. It's always about him. Whilst our stories are important and we must be heard, the stories we tell do not determine our existence or our sense of being in the world. The story we're invited to adopt is to live out the one that God gives us. You know, when God comes to, um, when humanity gets it wrong and falls in the beginning of the story, the first question that God asks is, where are you? And so the story of scripture is God seeking to dwell with his creation, to dwell with his people. And that's the story we get invited to tell. And so often we're telling our own story. We're telling our own story. We're saying my experience is my truth. Rather than saying that um, our existence depends on his story. So the first mistake that Saul makes is he has a high inflated view of himself and he proclaims that his story is his truth rather than saying that God's story is his truth. So let's pick up the story in verse 17. Samuel says to Saul, although you were once small in your own eyes, did you not become the head of the tribes of Israel? The Lord anointed you king over Israel and he sent you on a mission saying, go and completely destroy those wicked people, the Amalekites, wage war against them until you have wiped them out. Why did you not obey the Lord? Why did you pounce on the plunder and do evil in the sights, in the eyes of the Lord? God had given Saul an identity. And a purpose. Notice the words that Samuel says. The Lord anointed you. He chose you to be king. He sent you on a mission. But Saul had forgotten who he was. How do we know that he'd forgotten? Because here's Samuel telling him. He's telling him this is who you are. And you've forgotten. You've forgotten your purpose. You've forgotten your identity. You've forgotten why you were made. Who appointed you in the first place? You've forgotten it all. This morning um, at youth, we, we brought some Lego for our young people. And, um, and I was sat there building a bear using Lego, right? And in this box, there were hundreds, if not thousands maybe, of pieces of Lego. And if someone had come to me and said, could you build a bear? You, I wouldn't know where to start. It would be difficult. I'd, I'd try and put it together, but it would be hard. But thankfully, what was really easy, or made the project easier, was that I wasn't left to my own devices to self-construct a bear. There was an instruction manual. And the instruction manual, what it did 
was it out of all the thousands of pieces of things that I could have used to create an identity of this thing called a bear, it limited it to a certain amount. And it told me which things to put in place at which time. And lo and behold, I built a little bear because I followed the instructions. They weren't my instructions, they were somebody else's. It wasn't my design, it was somebody else's. But let me tell you, by following the design of somebody else, it was a heck of a lot easier to create an identity. Heck of a lot easier. But in this cultural moment, and I see it working with young people all the time, the the invitation is to self-construct an identity, and the same is true for us. Our identity is self-constructed. We're led to believe that there's a world of possibilities. You can be whoever you want to be, You know, you you don't want to be constrained by other people's ideas or inherited ideas about what it is to be human. Yes, there are instruction manuals out there, but you're better off to ditch those. You can be who you want to be. And our cultural moment says, be your authentic self. Except the reality is we still need validation from other people. So we can never really self-construct. We need other people to validate who we are. If I'd self-constructed a bear using Lego away from the instruction manual, I'd still need someone to go, oh yeah, that looks like a bear. I need someone else's validation. And so we look for likes, we look for acceptance from others, and that's the currency to our identity formation. The culture, the world says, you can be whoever you want to be, and yet we go, yeah, but we also need other people to tell us who we are. And then we get caught in a mess. And I think this need for validation is actually an echo of how God's made you. Because you're already valued. There's a designer who's created you on purpose for a purpose, like for a purpose. And the reason why that validation is an echo is because the reality is we're in the business of self-constructing identity away from God. And the distance produces the echo. Notice that Samuel has to come back to Saul and remind him who he is. He reminds him who he is. And the reality is he says this, Saul, you cannot become whoever you want to be. The Lord appointed you king. You can only become, we can only become the people God has called us to be. When Jesus is baptised, a voice from heaven says this. This is my son whom I love and I'm pleased with him. There's no sense of self-construction in that moment from Jesus. He doesn't define, he doesn't come out the water and go, I am God's son. He does also do that. But he does that because God says to him first, you are my son, whom I love. I am pleased with him. And so in a cultural moment that says your identity can be self-constructed, living in the fear of the Lord says that our identity is to be received from God. So, Two mistakes. Saul is, has a, a, an inflated view of himself. He's trying to construct his identity himself. Let's read on. 
Let's pick up the story from verse 20. So this is what Saul says in defense. But I did obey the Lord, Saul said. I went on the mission the Lord assigned to me. I completely destroyed the Amalekites and brought back Agag, their king. Which isn't quite the all of them, is it? It's like all but one. It's all but one. And then he tries to shift the blame. He says, it's the soldiers that took the sheep and the cattle from the plunder, the best of what was devoted to God, in order to sacrifice them to the Lord your God at Gilgal. So, third mistake. In possessing King Agag, in taking him captive, I I think Saul's making a statement. And I think the statement that Saul's trying to make is, is that by possessing power and authority you have success. By possessing power and authority, you have success. He thought that the accolade of of capturing King Agag, of sparing him his life, and capturing him as a king was success. Because a king is a position of authority and power, and is a a source of authority. And I think that he, he thinks here that success is the source of his authority. That success is defined by his achievements. Now, you and I, we we won't wake up tomorrow and think, do you know what I need to do? I just need to go and possess a king. You're not going to do that, okay? But I do think we all in some way, shape or form are seeking to possess power and authority. And I think we do that by trying to achieve. Because we think that success will breed achievement. And the achievements will bring us power and authority. We study hard. We try and get into a good course. We try and get into a good university. We try and get a good job. Preferably one of the best professions. And then you're set up for life. And so we think that success is defined by our achievements. But here's what Samuel says in verse 22. He says, Saul, does the Lord delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as much as in obeying the Lord? To obey is better than sacrifice. To obey is better than sacrifice. Samuel reminds Saul that success doesn't look like achievements but looks like obedience. In Philippians 2, in the New Testament, Paul writes that Jesus was obedient, even obedient to death. Obedient to to God, unto death. Like when Jesus dies on a cross, from a human perspective, looks like failure. Looks like failure, but he's obedient to God. And through obedience to God, it's, it's the greatest moment in his, in his ministry. Pete Scazzaro um, defines success this way. So success is, a be, is being obedient to what God says in the way he's equipped us to do it and in his timing. Success is being obedient to what God says in the way that he's equipped us to do it and in his timing. So... 
verse 24. Then Saul said to Samuel, I have sinned. I violated the Lord's command and your instructions. And here's the crux of the matter. Here's, here's where his failings are rooted. I was afraid of the men and so gave in to them. He was afraid of man. He lived in the fear of man. Or as I say, the fear of humanity. He lived in the fear of humanity. His failings, his, his belief that his existence depends on the story that he tells other people, that his identity is self-constructed, and that his success is defined by our achievements are all rooted in this one deep failing, and that's to live in the fear of man. And what I want to suggest to us tonight is that we find ourselves in similar positions and in, and in similar failings. I do. Um, I find that at times I'm trying to self-construct an identity. I'm trying to sort of like define who I am by putting pieces together and actually don't receive what God's told me who I am. Um, I've definitely found myself in, in the idea of like my success is defined by my achievements in how good my sermons are or in how good I'm good at worship leading or when I was in sales like how many TVs I sold like that was what defined success to me and, and I'm on a journey still on a journey of, of coming from living in the fear of humanity and living in the fear of the Lord because when you see it like I think there's a slide fee um, where they're like next door to each other in a table. Might be one of the last slides. Here we go. So, where fear of humanity is my existence depends on my story, living in the fear of the Lord is my existence depends on his story. Well, that, that feels easier. Like, when living in the fear of humanity is that my identity is self-constructed versus living in the fear of the Lord is identities received from God. Well, that seems easier. When living in the fear of humanity teaches me that success is defined by our achievements well okay being obedient to God can be difficult for sure but if that if that's what success is then I would argue that it's it's easier Jesus says my burden is light light my burden is light here's an example and so um, as, I, as I've come into land, I've, I've danced around this and I've not, it's not been very coherent, so I do apologise. But hopefully you follow my trail of thought. Um, so what, if the band can come back up just to give us hope that we're finishing, that would be great. <laughs> Cheers, Adam. Get off, get off Instagram. Come on, mate. Um, I, I just want to leave this up because I think, I, I think there's a choice for us to make. And I, and I think... For some of us, even I would say myself, there's, I look at this and as I reflect, I go, do you know what? There's, there's moments, daily moments, where I'm, I'm living in the fear of humanity and not in the fear of the Lord. And I'm not even aware. And it's not until you see it in front of you, you go, oh, pants, yeah. I'm trapped in the fear of humanity. And Proverbs 29, verse 25, it, it says this. It says, fear of the man will prove to be a snare 
But whoever trusts in the Lord is kept safe. And the idea of a snare, a trap, a bear trap, is you don't see it. It's invisible. You just walk aimlessly into it without realising. And the WWF, not the old Worldwide Wrestling Federation, but um, the wildlife, world wildlife people, um, on, on their website, they, they say this about snares, about traps, in the context of animals, okay? Now, you're not animals, I know that, some of you are. Um, you're not, I'm joking. It says, it says this, snares, listen to this, I haven't got a slide, so you have to listen. Snares are indiscriminate killing everything from tortoises to elephants to tigers and monkeys. Sitting silently in the forest, animals are caught when they walk in step walk or step into them. The snares are seen as one of the cruelest means of hunting, as many animals languish for days in a snare before dying from their injuries, lack of water or starvation. And though some animals escape, they often die later from a painful infection caused by the injury or starve as they struggle to find food with an injured limb. Or when you rewrite it with the context of the fear of the Lord versus the fear of man. If the fear of humanity, as the Proverbs writes, is to prove to be a snare, well then, fear of humanity is indiscriminate. Doesn't care who you are. Doesn't care how long you've been following Jesus for. We're all susceptible. It kills the soul of anyone that's trapped by it. And it sits silently in our everyday. And we're caught when we walk or step unknowingly into it. We don't mean to. And, and when seen for what it is, fear of humanity is, is one of the cruelest means of, of destroying you. It's one of the cruelest means of separating you from God. And it will make you languish for days, months, even years. Causing you deep hurt. Taking you away from the sustenance your whole being needs. And though some escape fear of humanity, for a time, they struggle to survive its consequences without assistance from others who are living in the fear of the Lord. And so really what it, what it boils down to, as we just put that grid up again, Fee, is like, do, do you trust God's instruction here? Like, do, do we trust that the fear of humanity is, is a snare, but those who fear the Lord are kept safe. Do we fear, do we, sorry, do we trust that existence depends on his story, not ours? That our, our existence as it is depends on what Christ did on a cross 2,000 years ago for you and I. That his story of seeking to dwell with humanity and live peaceably forever is the reason why we're here. Do we believe that? is true? Do we trust that our identity is received from God? That actually a God who we're only really getting to know, do we trust him enough that what he says about us is better than what we can create ourselves? And do we trust that the success we long for in life, the good things that we long for, will only come through obeying God by doing what he says in the way that he asks us to do it? And in his timing. 
So how, how do we do it then? How do we transition from living in the fear of humanity into the fear of God, into the fear of the Lord? Tonight, if, if you're there, like me, and you're going, do you know what? Yeah, there's moments in my day, probably in my life, where I'm living in the fear of humanity. There's a, there's a pattern that I think Saul um, paints out for us. And, and Saul replies to Samuel. He says, I have sinned. This is in um, verse 30. I have sinned. Please honour me before the elders of my people and before Israel. Come back with me so that I may worship the Lord your God. So step one, Saul says, I have sinned. So step one is to confess to another. To confess to somebody else and say, yeah, I, I've been, I can see there's some, there's some ways in which the fear of humanity works out in our lives. I can see how I've been doing that. Confess it to another. And then the second step is to come back to God. It's an old Christian word called repent. We've lost it in our modern contemporary ways of doing church and speaking about God. But repent literally means to be heading in one direction and to turn around and walk towards God again. And, and that when and if you do, the final step is to worship the Lord. And we do that by living in response to the wow and the woe of God. To live in the fear of the Lord.